Lord has given me a gift. Only one. I am the most complete fighter in the world. Hello and welcome back to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world. I'm your host, Mike Scott, on this journey through the career of one of the most exciting action stars of all time. And this week is a big one, folks. It's the movie that made me an Adkins fan forever. It's one of my favorite movies forever. And I contend it's one of the greatest action movies of all time. That's right, we're talking Undisputed 3 Redemption. And to help me, we have a returning champion, the absolutely amazing Vice Victus. Scott joins me to talk the movie as well. This is a huge episode, so let's not waste any more time. Here we go again! Boyka's back in the toughest prison in the world. This is him. Welcome to the first ever tournament of National Prison Fighters. Is about to begin. I want to fight again. Against the best in the world. It's suicide. You just your lights go out. Bling! Ultimate competition. Nobody's gonna get past my boy, Turtle. Freedom. I have to win. No one goes home. No one gets out alive. It's You just can't beat the Colombian. Thanks, man. Undisputed 3 was released in 2010 and is directed by Isaac Florentine and stars Scott, Marky Veneer, Michael Shannon Jenkins, and Marco Zoror. It was written by David White with fight choreography by the great Larnell Stovall. It finds Yuri Boyka broken after his defeat and serious injury at the hands of George Chambers when Boyka hears about a multinational tournament made up of the best prison fighters in the world. He defeats his prison's champion to earn his place in the tournament. The most complete fighter in the world has one last chance to prove he is the champion. But to do that, he'll have to contend with Dolar, played by Zoror, perhaps an even more fearsome fighter than Chambers, cocky American Turbo played by Shannon Jenkins, and his untrustworthy snake of a former manager, Gaga, played by Evenir. 
This episode's going to be a long one, so while I do want to talk about a couple of things, I'm going to keep this intro as short as I can. What I do want to do first, though, is jump right into my discussion with Scott. This is one of the longest conversations we've had, and it's one of my absolute favorites. Which is a perfect segue to the next film we're going to talk about, which, man, I don't even know where to start. It's my favorite movie of yours. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It is, I think, one of the greatest martial arts movies of all time. I know you've talked about it a thousand times, so I'm going to hopefully try and find some things to ask you about that you've never been asked before. But Let's go deep. Let's go deep into it. Come on. <laughs> Undisputed 3. Man, yeah. I, I just want to tell you what that movie means to me. That is, that is just a movie that, uh, I don't want to changed my life might be too strong, but it is a movie that I consider to be almost a part of my soul. It is, it is, it is, if there was one movie, that's the reason I'm doing this podcast, it's undisputed three. And, uh, and you guys, you and Isaac, you reteam after Ninja, and you come back with this, which is just an all-timer. Um, the first thing that I want to talk to you about is you're working with Larnell for the first time. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, Larnell's similar to JJ in the way that he choreographs fights, actually, so he's the perfect guy for that job. He's, he likes a bit of the flash, but he's got a vicious, viciousness in the choreography, a brutality. Um, you love to see people getting wrecked and hit hard, and that's perfect for a Boyka film. And he was hungry to do a good job. And uh, obviously, Isaac, Isaac and I, we'd had that conversation about Ninja that we were, dis- were disappointed about it. And I remember having these conversations with him where it was like, listen, we're, we're doing Undisputed 3 now and Boyka's the hero. Like we'd convinced them to do that and everyone was on board because he'd had such a great, everyone had loved him in, in, in the, the previous one. Um, he'd been such a great character and it made sense that he would be the, the good guy in this one because really we'd, they'd done that with um, Michael J. White's character played by Ving Rhames in the first he was the bad guy, really. He was now the good guy in number two. So it made sense that Boyka could be the good guy. Obviously, we didn't do that for number four because I got selfish. I was like, no, I want that movie. But anyway, um, we knew we had an opportunity, but we wanted to do a better job than, than Ninja. So we went into it very hungry. And immediately the decision was made, well, let's do it like a tournament film. Come on, Enter the Dragon, Bloodsport. We all like a tournament movie, but let's let's do a Boyka version of that, undisputed version of that. So we got those those guys together with the help of Larnell as well, knowing people like Ilram Choi and being close to someone like Marco, who I'd seen in Kiltro and you know recommended. I don't know Isaac had probably already seen his work, but I remember really wanting Marco to be the main bad guy. Um, remember having a conversation with Marco saying, God, I think he had some reservations. And I remember saying to him, listen, man, I'm not going to stop you from looking your very best. As far as I'm concerned, I want you to look as good as you possibly can. 
I want Ilram to look as good as, as possible. You know, I want Latif to look as good as possible. I want everyone to look as best as they can. We're all going to bring out all the best stuff that we can pull out for this martial arts movie. And, um, I, you know, for me, it's like the, the better the villain, the more Ivan Drago the villain, the better the hero when he eventually overcomes those odds. You know, that's always been my take on it. So I never try, uh, Marco had those uh, worries at first. Um, but he needn't have. And yeah, we were just very hungry. We had a good amount of time. I think we had five and a half weeks. And we just went for it. That end fight with me and Marco was, I think, three and a half days we spent shooting that, which is a luxury. Yeah, you don't get that anymore. But that's why the quality of the action is so good. My fight with Latif was done in. Was it one day? I think probably two days. Was it one? I can't remember if it was one day or two days. Um, but that end fight was about three days, three and a half days. And it's a seven minute long fight scene and there's drama in it and everything and all the different angles on the different actors reacting to it. Um, but yeah, it came together. It's a fun film. And of course, a very, a very, what's the word, uh, engaging central character who you can care for and get behind. He's the underdog. He was vicious in the first one, but he's, he's been left broken. And, um, you know, when we meet him, he's, he's at his lowest low. And so he's a character that you can really get behind and you want him to succeed and you're along for the journey. And then the odds are stacked against him. And he overcomes it. And, and that's the sort of thing that an audience can really get behind. And it, it's a fun movie. And the way Isaac shoots stuff, he's a big fan of uh, Sergio Leone, obviously. And all that stuff in the quarry was a nice uh, backdrop for the cinematography. And yeah, we did good. <laughs> I'm really happy that you, you like it so much. And yeah, I, I, did, I am aware that it's one of my best films and probably the best Boyka film. Well, and it just, um, I mean, I, I, I don't even know where to start. Like I said, so for me, one of the things I was all over this movie, I, I was like chomping at the bit for this movie to come out because I had seen Undisputed 2 and you mentioned the character arc and, and I love one of the things that I love is that, so yeah, Boyka is very vicious in Undisputed 2. But there's also the scene where when he finds out that the his associates, his henchmen, have drugged chambers, you know, you just, like, tear through them. You, like, break, like, three of their necks or something like that. And it's like, so they'd already, you, you guys had I wish already, we hadn't done that in hindsight. <laughs> Kill, killed that guy. That was a bit too much. But there you go, he's the villain back then. Well, but I think it also does establish an interesting character arc because it establishes that... I like to pretend that the guy didn't die, <laughs> to be honest. In my head, he didn't die. He might have looked dead. He went down with his eyes open, but I promise you guys... You just tweaked it. You tweaked yeah. it. You you were actually doing him a favor. He needed some chiropractic realignment. You were just helping him out because... Yeah, he's in much better shape than he was before. Trust me. <laughs> But I do think it does establish that Boyka cares about honor above and beyond else, all else. And so I think that does actually lead into where the character goes because 
you the character he fights to win but he fights to win honorably he doesn't fight to win by cheating and so i i do think it works yes i'm with you it's a little weird that you're snapping dudes necks and then two movies later you're like despondent because you inadvertently killed a guy in the ring but i i actually still think that the arc that's why one of the things i think that was I don't know if it was the studio or the production company or Isaac or you, but whoever gave the the subtitle Redemption, that was really, really smart. That was a really smart way of saying, hey, this guy was vicious in this movie, but we know you love him. So now we're going to see him climbing out of that to become a hero that you can actually get behind. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, we made him honorable. And the reason we did that, of course, is because he was the martial arts character. Undisputed 2 was a boxing movie. Isaac wanted to make it MMA. And that's why we made the martial artist have a sense of honor because, you know, we're martial artists and we, we've, you know, he's got to have that. Even though he's the baddie, he's got to have that sense of honor. And then the other thing is, I had seen Kiltro, I had seen Mirage Man, I had seen Chinango, I had seen Mandrill. My God, I was so excited for you to fight Marco. I would, and I know you've done an Art of Action, so I don't want to get into all the nitty gritty of the fight because you and Marco covered that on the Art of Action. But my God, just as a fan, the idea of Scott Adkins fighting Marco's Aurora for me was—I mean, that—that's. Jet Li fighting Mark Dacascos in Cradle to the Grave, or I mean, it was just it was a it was a thing that I just couldn't wait to see. And man, you know, you guys delivered. Holy shit, do you guys deliver in that fight? Yeah, we went for it. It was a hard, hard few days. It's crazy when you're doing it. I mean, you're so busted up and so tired, and covered in bruises and aches and pains you're skating that fine line between wanting to elevate and raise the bar uh, on the one side. And then on the other side, you're thinking, oh, don't push it too far and get injured because then this whole thing comes crashing down. You know what I mean? And I've done so many films where you get injured because inevitably you are going to get injured on some of them because you roll the dice, you know? So it's like, just don't get injured. Ninja 2, I was injured badly. Luckily, on, on Undisputed 2, um, I was yeah pretty good the whole way through. But you're always thinking, because you, you're fighting for so many hours in a day, and then you come back the next day, and you're doing the same thing again. And then the day after that, those muscles, they start tightening up. And then eventually, you know, something can snap or, you know, you can go over, roll over an ankle or something. So we were lucky. We were lucky because we really went for it. I am going to say I'm a little bit disappointed in you that when you get injured, you can't just put a mop. You can't just wrap a mop around it and go about your business, Scott. That's that's uh, you're yeah. you're you're destroying well, my two, suspension. Two of years disbelief. later, I would tear my knee apart for real. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't the right knee. It was the left. <laughs> so <laughs> I did the wrong one. Maps. Or mops, mops, man. You just got to keep mops with you everywhere you go. But you got to make sure they're brown and gross so that we get that nice uh, shot of, of stuff running down. No, I. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to ask about Undisputed 3 is 
uh, well, I guess I have two more questions because we didn't talk about him on Undisputed 2. Uh, and I don't, correct me if I'm not pronouncing his last name the right way, Mark Evenier, as, as Gaga, also an all-time great character, man. Yeah, man, brilliant actor. Um, to have a, someone like him to play against is, is a real gift. Uh, to raise your game. Um, did we talk? We did. We talk about Mikel. We talked about him previously. We didn't. We're going to talk about him in just a in yeah. just a minute. But, but yeah, someone like uh, Mark um, to play that character, and he plays him so beautifully. That's one of the the things that's so great about the character of Boyka and the position that he's in. Is he owes his life. And he, there's a subtext, a backstory that people don't know about. But what I had in my head, and it's very interesting when, when you watch the film now, and, and if I ever get to do another Boyka film, I'll, I'll lean more into this. So I won't go into it too much, but Gaga is the reason that I'm in prison. It is because of the dealings that I had out on the outside being an enforcer for him that I've, that I've ended up being incarcerated in prison. And all my dreams of being the world champion MMA guy are gone ostensibly because of that guy. However, he's the guy that I need in order to survive in the prison and to be able to keep living the life of a fighter and being able to do these things and fight people. I need him. So I have to be nice to him. So you've got this duality going on where I hate his guts, yet I need him. And that was what was playing in, in Undisputed 2. And then in Undisputed 3, that really comes to the, the forefront. Like, you know, he he left me, didn't he? He, he left me a broken man. And I, I hate him. I hate the, for all the reasons that he, he left me here. I hate him. Yeah, I also need him. Uh, and that was great to play with, that, that push and that pull. And that's something I'd like to explore more of um, if we ever get to do another one. We probably won't. But, yeah, I did have some good ideas. Well, and I think people would line up for that because, yeah, I, I one of my favorite scenes in that movie is the the exchange, the you Judas, I'm Judas. What does that make you, Jesus Christ? No, that makes me angry. My God, man, that that is just that That's is brilliant writing. That's brilliant writing. And I tell you what, we were so lucky. I can't remember his name. But the guy who did the music, the soundtrack to the movie, we're very lucky to get him um, because he was very, very good. The music is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely terrific. It's it's far above. I mean, that's the thing about Undisputed 3 is I, I watch and like a lot of DTV action, but this is so, on every front, just so far above what most direct-to-video action movies are. The music, the writing, the acting. Uh, I love, you know, one of the things I talked about, I just recorded the episode on The Shepherd, and one of the things I came, came to realize is how kind of quirky Isaac is as a director. He puts these really quirky things in. I love that Marco, you know, hangs out under the umbrella reading while you guys are all in the quarry. That's... That's such a clever 
thing to establish a character bit for him that you're not going to see in most direct-to-video action movies. Yeah, he loves it. I could just imagine Isaac setting that shot up and, and laughing, getting a real thrill out of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we, we, all like, we all love the line, uh, don't forget to take my chocolate. Yeah, don't, <laughs> yep, don't forget to take my chocolate. Like, it's just, there's so many great lines in it. You know, uh, I always think, too, of... Uh, so, so I always think of the way Mikkel is always saying improvise, adapt, overcome, and the way he keeps calling you Russia. Like, yeah. there's so many clever. That's char- that's from him. That is that a lot of ad libbing going on from him. I think that was him. You're Russia. Yeah, he was coming up with these things. There's just so many quirky character bits that make it so interesting. So we did we did want to talk about working with Mikkel because you guys have off the charts. Uh, acting chemistry in that movie you play so great together in that did you know him before that or was that just an on the set thing or how did that come about no i didn't know him and actually it was difficult to find the guy to play that part because you know you you want a really strong actor because it's so dialogue heavy and if he's not you you know you need an actor otherwise don't give him the role because it's going to fall flat but you want someone who can fight now Mikel had quite a bit to learn in terms of screen fighting, but I mean, look at the guy built like some sort of Greek god, amazing physique. So it wasn't difficult, you know. He, he did a fantastic job. He had some things to learn. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie, but you know, when it was all said and done, he, he did a fantastic job. But he's a great actor, and you know, he he really wanted to to make a good film and and him working with me was central to him giving a good performance because all of his scenes were with me, you know? So he came to me straight away and he said, Scott, look, I'm in the room across here, across the corridor. I'm coming to, into your room every night. We're going to sit down and we're going to go over the scenes that we're going to do the next day. We're going to work through this and, and get it to the place where I, I think it needs to be for it to be great. And I'm, I was like, yeah, man, come on, let's do that. Sounds great to me. I was in a position where, um, you know, I really wanted to, you know, always trying to do the best job as an actor. But him, as a more seasoned pro than I was at that point, coming in and really, it was a bit of a eureka moment and me understanding exactly what I needed to do in order to get a scene to a place of being truthful and good and all the rest of it. Um, he, he opened my eyes to some stuff. And it was a great experience and he was a very unselfish actor. And yeah, that that's one of the, the moments that I could think of through my career where it's been such a rewarding acting experience. Uh, one of the highlights that really stick out was that time with him um, every night. That, you know, on the, sun, on the day off, we would go through all the scenes of the week. You know, we'd spend the whole day on it. And then every night we would go through the scenes for the next day. And, uh, you, you know, it shows. And I underst- I came out of that film with a better understanding of, of what you had to do as an actor. And I, I owed that to him. Um, so he's a massive reason of why that film is, is better than it had any right to be. You know, his role is, is a role that could have just so easily gone off the rails. 
it, it, it could have just been over the top and annoying. And he's he hits it perfectly. You buy the relationship between the two of you. And yeah, I love the idea from a narrative standpoint of him having children and stuff like that is sort of, again, a motivating factor for Boyka to kind of become the hero that we want him to be. Uh, it's... I'm fanboying out. This was actually one of the movies that I was a little worried talking to you about because I was worried that I was going to just get a little too fanboy. But man, I just, I thank you, everybody, you, Isaac, Mikkel, everybody involved in the movie. Thank you for making this movie because this is a movie that is a important movie in my life. And uh, I love it, man. I love that you guys made this one. Oh, well, we love that, that you love it. Listen, um, you were talking about in England and we appreciate action films so much. This movie got no love in England. I think it didn't even come out properly. It was a weird, weird thing. It came out on Blu-ray, I think, in America, but in England. I think you could only get it online or something, on Apple or something like that. It was a ter- terrible release. Which is just weird to me uh, because I certainly have plenty of friends in England who have found it, but uh, yeah, I, I, this is one that I just, I do, you know, the intricacies of indie action releasing and stuff like that is something that I'm not even going to hope to understand, but it, it, the way this, you know, I know the story we talked in the pit fighter episode about how at action fest in, in Carolina, the, the panel basically, was like, look, we got to give an award to this movie because even though it's not truthfully in the competition, this is the best movie that we saw. And I mean, I, I think it, you guys, everybody involved came together to create an all-timer. I, I mean, it's, I'm not, again, trying to just blow smoke up your ass. This is a, a blood sport, Enter the Dragon level all-time action movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, no wow, ma- that's, uh, that's up there. That's up there with the best. I I think it's up there with the best. I legitimately think it's up there with the best. I think uh, this and one that we'll get to in a little bit. I think are two. Can I ask you, Michael? What? Which is your out of the three uh, undisputed movies that I've made? Um, how would you rank them in terms of your favorite? I would Obviously, rank. I would rank three then four, then two. Now, that being said, I think they are all terrific. Two is one that every time... Two is an important one to me because that was where I first really noticed you. I had seen Black Mass 2. I had seen The Medallion. I had seen some of your movies, but I obviously didn't realize you were Scott Adkins. Two, So two is important to me because that's where I first realized who you were, and I was already a big Michael Jai White fan. I think... Two, two is one that's grown on me in estimation or esteem the more times I see it. I just rewatched it last night with my wife and liked it more than I ever have uh, because I just am a bigger, I, I'm more knowledgeable about your career. I'm also more knowledgeable about Michael Jai White's career and Isaac's career. And so I can more appreciate the things that you guys bring. I think four is... Uh, 
four has what are we waiting for bring me your fucking champion which is you know a, a, a drop that i do in the podcast and uh mm-hmm. and i think four takes boyka to a logical place i would love to see you do undisputed five but to be honest with you i think where boyka ends up in four is quite frankly sort of a perfect place for the character uh but there's a big gap between those two and three. Three is three is action perfection for me, man. I just I think that is a perfect movie. There's not a single thing I would ever ask you guys to change about that movie. I think it is uh it's it's action perfection. I consider it an all time great. Oh, that's great. And do you have a theory of why Boyka might be so popular with people. I mean, because I've had this thing running through my career ever since Undisputed 2, where it's been a strange thing that the character of Boyka is almost, people want me to really be him. And it's almost felt like, oh, people prefer him to, to me. I think I've escaped that now, but certainly for a good, like, five years, maybe more, it felt like that. I mean, at one point, Boyka... Yuri Boyka on Facebook had about 2 million more fans than Scott Adkins did. <laughs> um, now I've overtook it, thankfully. But it was getting me down at one point. But why do, what, do you have a theory on, on why Boyka is so beloved by so many people? Well, uh, I have multiple theories. Well, I don't have multiple theories. Man, I, I feel have- like a right full set. I've just heard my own voice talking about myself. Sorry. <laughs> no, but, you're... You know, I know how, what Boyka means to so many people. I mean, you see people with tattoos of him and everything. And I, I just wondered what your take on it was. So my take is, number one, uh, think of Die Hard, right? John McClane is interesting, fine. But what makes Die Hard is Hans Gruber. An action movie is only as good as its villain to begin with. So we start with Undisputed 2, and we've got a a classic villain. I mean, I think even if you'd never made sequels, Boyko would have still been an, a, a classic action villain because he's, he's fascinating. He's an interesting character. You're doing the great accent, which makes him memorable. Um... But then to see that character evolve and change and grow makes him, and and as somebody who started, you know, I saw Undisputed 2 in 2008, and then I saw Undisputed 3 in 2010, and Undisputed 4 when it came out. So there's 10 years there where I grew up, Uh, grew older I don't want to say grew up because I was already old but grew older with Boyka and so to see that character change as we grow but then couple that with just the fact that you've had some really terrific writing as far as just kick ass lines that also makes it really memorable you know I am the most again it's it's the opening drop in my podcast God has given me one gift, only one. I am the most complete fighter in the world. Like, that is an all-time great action movie line. So I just think it's a perfect storm. I think Boyka became such a perfect storm for you, both as an actor, but then also as an action movie star, because it those movies also allow you to do... You know, I don't know if you listened. 
I, I've had a nickname for you for years where I call you the human special effect because gravity just doesn't seem to apply to you. And and no movie you do other – like the Boyka movies exhibit that better than anything. So I think it was just a perfect storm of all these things working together. I think he's iconic, isn't he? There's some characters where you only need to see the silhouette and you can tell who it is. I think maybe Boyka is one of those characters. Um, and obviously the tattoos and the style of the hair and everything. And he's the underdog as well. And people get behind that. I think the religion thing has something to do with it as well. I think people can, a lot of people can really relate uh, to that. So that's not something you see that often either, I don't think, in action films, someone who's very religious like that. Um, maybe you do. No, I don't. I don't think you do. And I think that's the thing as a character, you know, you, you mentioned you had this whole backstory about Gaga and stuff like that. And I think that's what makes Boyka so interesting is there's so much not on the page and not in the movies. Character. There's a deep truth going on within him. You can see internal struggle. He doesn't need to say anything. You can see it within him. Yeah, where do all the tattoos come from? Where do, you know, uh, there's just all these things that I think just make him a, a an all-time character. I mean, iconic, you you said the word. He's iconic. He's absolutely, I just, uh, I think, uh, you know, and I, I am with you. I think it's unfortunate that for a long time, Yuri Boyka had more followers than Scott Adkins. You know, one of the things that I was lucky enough to do is, after I saw Undisputed 2, I went and tracked down Special Forces and was like, oh, okay, so this guy can really do a lot of different things. And so I've always just viewed you as your Scott Adkins. But I don't think there's any question that Boyka is, I mean, he's the kind of character that I think a lot of actors would give their left nut to to be and you get to be him and that's that's pretty terrific man that's amazing well also he's he's a he's a true character i mean he's nothing like me at all apart from the fact that we can both defy gravity of course but aside from that i mean it was a real acting challenge um that i was very proud of to have pulled off you know i mean no one thought i could do it um and I, and I did it, successfully portrayed this character that was completely different from myself. And um, that was a lot of fun. And that, so the actor inside me was very proud of that and, and enjoyed that and, you know, dug into that. But then there's a part of me that probably thinks, well, maybe you should have just changed your name to Yuri Boyka, kept the goatee and the haircut, kept the muscle mass, and only ever played Boyka in every other movie and I'd probably be a, a bigger, a bigger star than I am now. If people thought like, it's like Tong Po, isn't it? We all thought Tong Po was real when kickboxer came out, done something like that. Yeah. But I'll tell you it, above and beyond several of your other movies, um, or a few movies away from getting to it, but then you also wouldn't have, uh, been John in universal soldier day of reckoning. And as much as I would love for you to just have been like, I'm just going to be Yuri Boyka, I wouldn't give up that role and that movie as a fan of yours. I wouldn't give up that role in that movie in a heartbeat. There's there's no amount of money you could give me to uh, 
not have you star in that movie, but we will okay. get to that. I would have played Andre's part. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, <laughs> that's that's not that's not why you're great in that movie. Like, yeah, no, I. Uh, but uh, before we get to that. And as, as much as I could still talk to you about Boyka, I, we do have other movies in your career, but uh, I hope I've impressed upon you how much I love Undisputed 3 and how much I love that character and, and how much you doing that has, has meant to me as a movie fan. I appreciate that, Michael. And yeah, I know that that's uh, a lot of people out there love that film. Very proud of it. I, like I say, sometimes it, it comes together and and sometimes it doesn't. It was uh, lightning in a bottle. We had a great cast. Um, Isaac excelled with his directing. Yeah, great lines, great music. Uh, Ross Clarkson did a brilliant job, director of photography. The speed ramping and everything suited it. The tournament, all the all the characters that came in, all the stunt guys. It's yeah, it's it's one of the best martial arts films out there, and I'm very proud of that. I can take that to my grave. Thanks as always to Scott for so graciously taking the time to chat with me. Okay, I can't talk Undisputed 3 without talking Marco Zoror, a.k.a. the Latin Dragon. Born in 1978 in Chile, Zoror began studying martial arts at the age of six, primarily specializing in taekwondo and kickboxing, though he's also proficient in judo, aikido, and several other styles. Zoror burst on the scene when he teamed with fellow Chilean director Ernesto Diaz Espinosa. Together, they created 2006's Kiltro, billed as the first Chilean martial arts film. From there, they would go on an impressive run, following Kiltra up with R- Mirage Man, Mandrill, and Redeemer. Zoror had worked in Hollywood pr- doing stunts prior, but lamented the fact that Latin countries lacked a true martial arts star like Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan, the, the stars that he grew up idolizing. So he and Espinosa created one essentially. Kiltro and Mirage Man tend to be a bit amateurish as indie action can be, but there's no denying Zoror is an impressive performer with screen presence to burn, and Espinosa knows how to shoot action. There's one scene in Kiltro in particular that just blows me away every time I see it, where Zoror uses knives attached to his wrists and legs to slice through uh, like a hundred guys. It's very cool. For me, though, the real highlight of their partnership is 2014's Redeemer, the one that feels like a true statement of purpose. Track down this Redeemer guy. Bring me back two bags, one with my money and one with his head.
Hey, I'm Lisa. Sony Pictures has decided to join the popular witch theme movie success with the announcement that the studio is planning a remake of their own 1996 witch movie, The Craft. The original teen supernatural thriller starred Robin Tunney, Faritza Balk, Neve Campbell and Rachel True as a group of young witches at a Catholic school. Using their magic powers to fix their own personal problems, they soon discover that dark forces can be dangerous and have deadly consequences. This new version will be helmed by up-and-coming horror director Lee Janiak, who is also writing the screenplay. The Craft is slated for release in 2017. Now don't forget to download our Filmies Now app for instant access to all our trailers. Zoror plays a former hitman named Nicky Pardo, who after an unbelievable tragedy now targets his former employers, giving them the chance to repent for their sins or die. Deeply steeped in Catholic iconography and telling a story more steeped in religion than the typical act action fair, Redeemer really stands out as unique. It's the kind of movie that only Zorora and Espinoza could have made. Make no mistake though, they also bring their A-game to the action. Redeemer is brutal, bloody, and shows off a much more confident Zorora than his previous work except Undisputed 3. It also has one of my very favorite character actors, the always entertaining Noah Sagan, doing a thing, and I love that thing. I can't really recommend Redeemer highly enough for action fans, and I hope Zorora and Espinosa get another chance to do their thing. Scott did a terrific art of action with Zorora that spends a lot of time talking about his stunt work and their work together on Undisputed, so I definitely encourage you to check that out as well. If you haven't, I will make sure to link it in the show notes. I really wanted to talk about Larnell Stovall as well, but given how long this episode is already going to be, I think I'll save him for a later episode. So with that, let's bring on this week's returning champion, Vice Victus. So what are we waiting for? Bring me your fucking champion. All right, folks. Uh, as promised, we are back with another returning champion uh the one the only the amazing vice victus vice how are you doing today man yeah i'm doing fantastic i've been waiting this for this episode for a long time um you know once again i just want to thank you for inviting me on you know having this podcast you know covering what myself and so many other fight fans have you know really been dying to see to hear and, and you know and take part of I'm happy to have you back, man. I had such a blast talking with you, uh, talking special forces with you that I I'm just super excited to be talking this one. You know how much I love this movie. I know how much you love this movie. This one is one that I've I've really been looking forward to getting to as well. Before we get into that, though, so the last time you were on, we talked Scott movies and Scott recommendations and some Isaac Florentine movies and stuff. And so We'll talk a little bit more about them, but obviously this is a sequel to a actual major, you know, semi-major Hollywood picture. And so I don't think we can really get started until we talk about the original Undisputed, the Wesley Snipes, Ving Rhames, Walter Hill directed Undisputed. Uh, 
What did you think of the original Undisputed? Yeah, yeah. At first, that's my assignment. Exactly. You know, you, you have to cover this stuff to you know, get the full sequel. So, yeah. So, starting with the, the uh, original so 2002, Undisputed, like you said, Jordan, Wesley Snipes and Ving Rhames, um, directed by Walter Hill. So, you know, first off, Walter Hill, he's the venerated director who's responsible for, you know, a handful of some truly iconic works of American cinema. Um, most notably is like uh, The Warriors from 78, you know, the gangland, gangland Odyssey there. And then, of course, the uh, 1982's 48 Hours, starring Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte. I know, so he's he's, a, he's pretty well versed in like the that kind of old school uh, gangland kind of drama, action drama. Um, his prime was considered, you know, the 70s, 80s, you know, with the smattering of writing and directing projects in the early 90s and 2000s, and Undisputed being one of them. So, uh, you know, just, uh, first I'll just do a re quick recap of the story itself. So, uh, for Undisputed. So the setting is uh, deep in the Mojave Desert, uh, lies Sweetwater Penitentiary. It's a maximum security prison that houses a uh, underground boxing match uh, tournament. So among the prisoners is former world-class boxing prospect Manu Hutchins, played by Wesley Snipes. Uh, he was sentenced to life in prison for murder, and he maintains an undefeated record uh, both outside the ring and during his time as uh, behind bars. So an unprecedented so a special opportunity comes up when uh, the undefeated world champion, George the Iceman Chambers, is sentenced to Sweetwater Prison after a rape conviction. Iceman is initially only concerned with uh, establishing dominance, you know, biding his time until he can find a way out. So having the world champion and an undefeated fighter in the same move leads to a series of altercations, and you know, but they're quickly dealt with by the, uh, the wardens and such, and also the uh, inter-prison kind of politics, you know, with the gang leaders and so forth. However, when Iceman is presented with the opportunity to, for early release by agreeing to a match with uh, Hutchins, it's uh, the powers that be set in motion, you know, the, the machinations towards their inevitable confrontation in the square circle. Um, <clears throat> so the film itself is kind of a, you know, one of those uh, meat and potato, or what my friend calls meat and potato cinema. So, you know, red meat, hard boiled, down dirty kind of uh, action drama. Um, but this is surprisingly, there's a lot of going on under the hood of, the, of this kind of what's really a straightforward premise, you know, two guys fighting in the ring. Uh, the movie's main draw is between the, 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 these two big indomitable gladiators. And the film manages to like make the buildup uh, and set up to that match interesting and entertaining on its own. And there's various levels of tension throughout this runtime of all the, uh, all the politics and all the pecking orders established in order to get this fight going on. So, you know, there's one big kind of long setup to the fight, but it makes it, it's very compelling to watch. So even though the nominal hero of the movie is Wesley Snipes as, as Hutchin, I would say the actual stand-up performance, the main real character is Ving Rhames as the Iceman. Uh, clearly he's influenced by the real world heavyweight champion at the time, Mike Tyson. And he's a very fascinating character. He's brash and cocky in the face of authority and uh, his fellow inmates, you know, he seeks to test his mettle, to test his might. Uh, he's a terrifying bully in some sense, but also he has a distinct sense of honor, or, you know, like a man's got to have it cool, you know. <laughs> and um, Undisputed does a, does a great job of making the antagonist, if not sympathetic necessarily, but uh, understandable and a fully realized character. And this, is, this, this, this kind of central conceit will become the series defining strengths, having these well-rounded fighters and you understand their motivations and their backgrounds. 
And so when you think the two characters together, it's an Iceman's kind of his rage works well in contrast to Wesley Snipes' calm and collected performance as Monroe. Um, and you see it both in their in their character, in their acting, and then also in their fighting styles. You know, when you see the, the eventual fights, and even the smaller the smaller uh, dust ups that happen, you know, throughout the story. You know, Iceman fighting the various uh, goons in the prison system. And uh, the, uh, the same, you know, George, Ving, Rams, Ving Rams himself, you know, has a history of, uh, 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 he's, a, he's a big guy and he does both drama and acting uh, and action uh, equally well. So you see his uh, his full kind of boxing athleticism come out to play in here. And it works well, uh, contrasting to Wesley Snipes' you know, of course he has a long story background in martial arts. Uh, and he has various uh, black belts uh, under his name. And so he plays that to his character, you know, uh, Snipes or uh, Monroe. They kind of have that calm, collected, uh, almost a Zen, almost like a uh, like a Shaolin warrior, or whatever, like that. Like a, and, and the character himself says uh, the reason he's in prison in the first place is because uh, uh, one one night uh, he he finds somebody in bed with his wife, and he beats him to death with his bare hands. And so it's one of those uh, funny um, movie things where because he's a Registered lethal weapon, you know, because he's a boxer, that uh, that warrants him being sent to life uh, for first degree murder. I will say really quick that was so, and I'll talk more about this that that I rewatched it this time, and my opinions on it changed dramatically. But that is the one part where I I really did roll my eyes that that movie cliche <laughs> of your hands are registered that, that is just for folks who are wondering. Uh, that is not a thing that exists in the real world. That is a complete movie. You know, uh, Cameron Poe, same thing in Con Air. His hands are, are should be registered as lethal weapons or whatever. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, there's, even, it, there's even a joke about that in uh, the recent uh, point time in Hollywood, the Tarantino joint, or uh, in, the, in that kind of that uh, very uh, controversial flashback where the main character fights Bruce Lee. Right. And Bruce Lee boasting about that. My hands are lethal weapons. And and Breakfast uh, Kept said, "No, that's that's manifold. That's that's not an actual thing." <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and and I do love. I don't love that scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I do love you know when Bruce says, "If I punch you and you die, it means I go to jail." And Brad Pitt goes, "If you punch anybody and they die, you go to jail. It's called manslaughter." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, um, so you know, you have that that uh, the contrasting character, but then when it's funny time for the actual fight. It comes through in their physicality as well. You know, Ving Rams is a, they're both about the same height almost, but uh, Ving Rams is uh, obviously a very heavier set guy. So he has this kind of really full full steam ahead, steamroller kind of attack pattern. You know, it's all almost all haymakers and power punches. Whereas with his size being a, a lighter frame, he has a more, he works the angles a bit more, you know, almost like a, uh, you might compare it to something, maybe say uh, Roy Jones Jr. versus Mike Tyson, which I mean, apparently is going to be a thing or, or, or tentatively we'll see in the world. I heard, you know, I heard that Tyson making a comeback fight for his mission match, but you know, whatever. Um, so anyway, so, and the thing with, uh, again, and again, more about that fighting style is like, uh, it's it's a good balance between the kind of over-the-top um, filmatic, cinematic, cinematic boisterous stuff of the Rocky movies within a more grounded, uh, you know, real-world, hardcore uh, street fighting a little bit. So the the choreography is very a good balance of that. You know, there's plenty of you know flashy punches, but also you see that you you can see clearly they both have a real background in boxing fundamentals, where they move and when they when they they're, they're 
head movements, everything from the punches to the defense, it's all there. And so I think I think it's a very impressive display of, of fighting in general. Um, so with that being said, one of the um, one of the critical elements of undisputed that can't be overlooked is how racially charged it is. Uh, what I mean is that the film was kind of marketed as a black movie, quote unquote, and it wears that blackness on its sleeve. Um, you know, there's a it features a heavy hip hop soundtrack. Um, there's a cameo by the rapper Master P, who also appears on the soundtrack as one of the inmates. Um, within the film, the uh, there's a uh, the the uh, ring announcer is a famous New York hip hop radio DJ Ed Lover. Yeah, he was big in the, back in the day in the 90s uh, on Hot 97, the local um, radio station here that's also you know, world famous for um, introducing uh, hip hop uh, icons. Also, the co host of the very influential and very important Yo MTV raps exactly. in the exactly. 80s and 90s. Yep. Exactly. So, you know, that, that, that's, that, that streak of, of black culture is, is very prominent in this film. But, you know, at the same time, it has all these other racial dynamics. You know, one of the characters, uh, you know, the, the great Peter Falk. Uh, you know, famous for Columbo, of course, but he plays the uh, an old mobster um, in jail for tax evasion, and so but he's also kind of the uh, he's a fight aficionado. He's you know had a long history of watching boxing matches and knows the ins and outs of the sport, of the art, the science, and so he's one of the uh, key uh, brokers in making the fight happen. You know, or assigning all the rules and regulations how they want the fight to go. And also, a funny thing is that you see, uh, you know, like in a lot of in most prison movies. As again, like as in the world, there's a lot of um, there's a division. So tribalism, as it were, we have the white gangs, the Latino gangs, the black gangs, kind of keeping to themselves and forming like a, a tenuous peace to get by. And one of the funny things in the, in the movie is that uh, Ling Ram is kind of he kind of shakes it all up. Uh, he, he's challenged or tries to get or is a proposition for help from various factions, but in the end, because he kind of rankles them all. They all ultimately uh, place their support for Romero to kick to beat his ass. <laughs> it's pretty funny in that, in that respect. And then, so, and also, but along with that, all that racial um, text—not just subtext, actual text of the film—is the fact that you know him being kind of a character or a reflection of Tyson, um, but more so like uh, the. It's a, it's a very significant thing, the perception of the black American male. You know how you. He even says, you know, I'm famous and people pay me to put people in body bags. They fuck me because I'm a big, bad, black motherfucker. You know, and, and he says that that's why nobody believed me um, about this charge. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a very key thing in the film that it seems like it's a, a small character beat, but it kind of is an important thing about fighting, uh, our cultural understanding of fighting, both in our reality and in movies. Um, so here, I want to get just briefly touch on the sequel to this Undisputed Two, and I know by the time this comes out, let, you know, let me let me slow you down before we get into Undisputed Two because I oh, do want to talk. No, you're good, man. You're good. I just I do want to talk a little bit more about Undisputed because I think I think everything that you've just raised, you know, and I I said this when we recorded Undisputed Two. I I saw this in 2002 or 2003. It came out in 2002. I think I saw it on video, so probably 2003, and I wasn't that impressed at the time. I rewatched it for the undisputed episodes here that we're recording and I was absolutely blown away. I don't know what was wrong with me <laughs> 18 years <laughs> ago when I watched it uh because I was absolutely I I think the biggest thing I had 18 years ago was it wasn't a martial arts movie, it was a boxing movie and I just 
I hadn't quite, even though I liked Rocky, I hadn't quite developed the appreciation for boxing movies that I do now. Um, but I also, you know, we don't get, we don't get too deep into politics or anything on this show because action is for everyone, but we're recording this in 2020, uh, pandemic mm-hmm. notwithstanding, you also can't deny everything that's going on in this country. And mm-hmm. the, you, you called it the, the way this movie wears its blackness on its sleeve and it is just unapologetically black and other you know john cita is a major character in it west studi's a major character in it like it is an unapologetically black and my minority focused movie and it's so i don't i don't want to say necessarily angry but there is a there's a power in the movie that i just i was not prepared for as a white kid growing up in utah to fully appreciate 18 years ago now I'm a lot older and I know a lot more and I've lived in a lot of different places. I really just, I was really impressed with this movie when I rewatched it. I, I, I'm glad you wanted to spend some more time talking about it because I think this is for people who haven't checked this one out because for you, your understanding of the undisputed series is Boyka. You're really missing out. And, and it, is an important part of the story. It's not just a, and you know, we'll talk about this a little more when we get to Undisputed 2 briefly, but this isn't just some, the sequels are not just some in-name only sequel. They really carry a lot of the themes that were started in this movie throughout, I think. Uh, So I just, I wanted to throw my two cents in on this movie. I'm not nearly as articulate about it as you are, but I really, if people are listening and you haven't seen the original Undisputed, you gotta check it out. It's it's just it might be Walter Hill's last great movie. I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And you know, like like you yeah, mentioned before, like you, it's it's worth laboring the point because uh, just in general, you can't really have a prison film. You know, these are prison prison fighting movies. You can't really have a prison film without addressing the racial subjects behind our, you know, incarceration system. It's it's baked into what it is. So to, to avoid that would be kind of to disservice to the story or the characters or you know real life. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely worth seeing for, and, and, just, and not just to see all these elements come together so well. And like you said, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that well, as doing my research, it didn't do well or didn't perform too well in the box office. But it turns out that when it came to DVD and home video, that's where it kind of got its real life, and we just kind of you know. Also, a fitting theme of the Undisputed series itself being a a, a DTV series, really, um, that it worked so well, especially in that regard. Well, and you mentioned a lot about Bing's character, and and obviously people who've seen him know, and we'll talk about him more. He's played by Michael Jai White. He becomes the 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 protagonist and hero in the second one, but it really does also establish that sort of running theme of the honor and the code of fighters in the Undisputed series. I mean, both Monroe and Iceman have, their codes are very different, but they have a code. There's, I do love the scene. I wanted to kind of shout out. I love the scene where the, not the warden, but the, like the board of pardons woman is talking to Monroe and he's basically saying, you know, I live in my head, 
you, time is nothing because my time exists in my head and that's why he's able to maintain such a and you brought up the scene and I love his line where he says the one time I lost my cool is what got me in here and uh and and just the way Wesley delivers it because he he is Wesley Snipes he's so he's a legit bona fide actor like no doubt about it you know he, you know, he started you know respecting everything he does again same thing with the thing he does his action just as superbly as his drama and his comedy too you know white man can't jump all that kind of stuff he just he does it all and 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 Wesley is he he does such even as Blade who is just barely contained rage but he does that conveying that external calm so well in so many roles you know he can do a bunch of other things I mean Nino Brown is anything but externally calm, right? But he can convey that sort of, you mentioned Zen, that almost Zen-like external calm, but his eyes and his face always still show that sort of fire within. And this is a movie that I really think plays to both of their strengths. Uh, Everything that both Snipes and Rames do well, Walter Hill is able to really play to those strengths yeah yeah one more thing before we go on is that um well you mentioned it before when we did special forces the podcast for that um I, you said you didn't want to um pigeonhole me into being you know i'm not you don't want me to be just the military guy talking about military movies but you know i i definitely said that because you know it's kind of my niche uh, nobody else is really doing what i'm doing and similarly here um oh in case you guys didn't know i'm black I know it sounds the sound there, but I am. So I also when I view when I analyze movies, it's through that lens as well. So that's why this this racial text of these films is so important to me. Uh, and I think that maybe some people don't necessarily take it or as seriously as it should be. And so that's again, this is actually a key element for as you said, the other films in the series as well. Well, and that's why I love I love your writing. I love having you on the show because you know your your history, your life, you are black, you are ex-military, you and I in life experiences could not really be any more different. And you live in New York, I live in friggin' Utah, you know, it's like <laughs> we, and, and yet, uh, A, I, I love your perspective that you bring because it always makes me step outside myself and think about how movies play to people who don't look or have my life experience look like me or have my life experience. But one of the things that I love about this show and one of the things I love about Scott Adkins is we can all still come together and just take real joy in watching grown men beat the ever living shit out of one another. <laughs> like, like we can still all, all really enjoy that. But yeah, man, I, I I always love your perspective on stuff. I, I don't want to just sound like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but your your writing and your perspective, uh, and I will give you a chance to plug stuff. But again, uh, this episode uh, for folks listening, this episode's dropping on Christmas Eve of 2020. Uh, Vice, uh, I'm assuming that your uh, recap of all the military movies of the year uh, will probably be out by then. But if not, it'll be out soon. That is yeah. essential reading for everybody listening to this show. Yeah. And so, well, like you mentioned, uh, that's a good point about the how action film kind of brings us all together. Like I've heard you know, in, your, in your previous podcast, all your guests, they, they give their history, how you know the Eastern Asian martial arts films kind of open their eyes to the world of cinema. And so I want to kind of start to pivot on this video too now because one thing about that is that um, 
this kind of building of perspectives of how action brings the world together is also a text a text of these films as well. So to start with, I'll say, um, so for the longest time, you, uh, in, in our cultural consciousness, if not the world, at least in America, for the longest time, if you had to ask the question of who is the baddest man on the planet? Who is the toughest fighter in the world? Who cannot be beaten in a fight? The answer generally leads towards whoever is the world heavyweight boxing champion, be it, you know, Dempsey, Joe Lewis, the greatest himself, Muhammad Ali, Tyson, Holyfield. All throughout history, this has been the line of thinking that the, the heavyweight champ is the man to beat. And of course, you would see, you notice there within that line of great history, you know, they're all, they're all black. Well, you know, uh, say for, you know, say Marciano or whatever. <laughs> but then what happens here is that um, in the mid 90s and through the turn of the century, the explosion of mixed martial arts, MMA, and organizations like the UFC and Pride Fighting Championships, they begin to fundamentally alter that perception of how you answer that question. One of the big things that happened, uh, it was uh, the first UFC Fighting Championship in 93 when the legendary Royce Gracie became the first champion. Once that happened, the world was never the same. For him, when he, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu became known to the mainstream, to the whole world, it's, it's a fighting method specifically designed to defeat bigger, stronger opponents. And you know, that, that, that tournament, that, that victory, it was a showcase for fighting techniques from all over the world. And very soon after, fighters, fighters across the planet began to immediately learn and adapt their styles to become the next ultimate fighting championship. So what you see there is that in this turn of the century, the, when you ask who the baddest man on the planet is, the answer suddenly doesn't become so clear anymore. It's not so definitive. So in Undisputed 2, I love that it reflects this cultural change. Uh, specifically, Boyka, Yuri Boyka, Akin's character, he sort of represents the rise of the Caucasian fighting sensations that became famous. Um, so for example, the Dutch heavyweight warrior, Bas Rutten, you know, he was a pride fighter uh, and he did a very, he, I think he was a, a pancreas fighter, but he did, you know, all kinds of styles, kickboxing, wrestling. He was one of the, he is, he is, was, is one of the greatest fighters maybe to ever live. He was so brutal, but so precise in his application of violence. And then of course, you know, he, Boyka also mirrors people like uh, the fan favorite slugger, Chuck Liddell. You know, his big wobbly haymakers would knock people out, you know, with one touch, that kind of guy. And so same thing, you know, even though, even, even though he's the nominal bad guy of the film, his character, of course, leads that lasting impression of not just, you know, of, yeah, as a character himself, as, as, an, as a movie character, but this kind of, he's, he's relaying this cultural understanding of how we approach or how we think about the best fighters in the world, the baddest man on the planet. Well, and I love too that, you know, they actually, Boyka was initially supposed to be based on Chuck Liddell. Like that was the style and body type that they wanted, which is part of the reason that Adkins had to get so much bigger. You know, folks listening, if you've watched a bunch of Scott Adkins movies, which I'm sure you have, or you wouldn't be listening, you realize he's not actually that big of a dude. He's, he's, not that tall. I think he's 5'10", 5'11". And he he doesn't... And so he had to pack on a bunch of weight to play Boyka for a couple reasons. One, because they wanted him to look more like Chuck Liddell, who is a big, beefy dude. 
And two, obviously, of course, because he's got to stand in a ring with Michael Jai White and an actual human giant and not look like he's going to get just destroyed in 30 seconds. Um, but it does, it does, I, I love that you brought that up because it does really drive home that evolution, right? That, that idea that boxing, you know, you mentioned those questions, you know, who was the toughest person in the world? I mean, I, I don't pay attention to boxing like I used to. And part of that is just because you used to, Mike Tyson was a household name. He was making like Pepsi commercials, right? And sort of Floyd Mayweather is kind of the last boxer that I feel like became that big household name. And now it's mostly all the MMA guys. Uh, and, and that this movie undisputed too does. Isaac was very astute in recognizing that that evolution was happening. And so to, shift the series away from boxing to the more MMA martial arts oriented style was very smart on his part. Yeah. And so when we talk about Undisputed 3, I want to just so now we get to the meat of it all here. And Undisputed 3 is kind of, if Undisputed 2 was kind of the reckoning, the recalibration of that, of that thought of the best man on the planet, I think that Undisputed 3 is great because it's kind of the full celebration of the uh, dominance of MMA and of the uh, recognition that, you know, the the whole world is watching, the whole world is participating in combat sports, in this quest for the baddest man on the planet, in this quest for fighting, you know, in a in a true sense of kind of a unifying uh, unifying wave of martial arts, you know. And so, uh, or did you, I don't know if you've already given the uh, recap of this of the movie, but basically, uh, you know, book is now moved to a. Uh, a, a separate uh, facility where they have a uh, their first ever uh, world prison championship fighting tournament, and so but the the world part is an emphasis in this case because you see there's a a, a few several athletes highlighted from around the world, uh, and what they do here is they they use their their homes to represent their kind of indigenous or their uh, specialized fighting styles. Uh, I think uh, so. It is, I believe it's about the eight, eight or so characters um, who, who you see are the main, the main combatants. And so, for example, uh, you see uh, there's a, uh, a North Korean prisoner, and he represents the Taekwondo style fighting, you know, the famous, the, the famous uh, kicking based arts. There's a uh, Greek fighter, uh, a fighter from a prisoner from Greece, and you can kind of, you can kind of sort of guess that his uh, fighting style is pancreas or pancreasium, uh, which is a, a style, well, it's kind of a, it's been said it's a, one of the oldest fighting styles in the world based way back in the Greek, you know, the Greek gladiator styles of, of wrestling and fighting or more of a, you know, full contact strikes, uh, all kinds of strikes, plus grappling as well. Uh, there's a French fighter there and you can kind of tell his, he has a kind of a kickboxing, kicking based art, but it seems to be more based on the French art of Savat, uh, a uh, combat kicking based art that I think gained, it's been around since I think the 1800, but, um, Gained more prominence after or during World War II, and uh, very gained a lot of prominence in movies because uh, a that was one of the styles that Jean Claude Van Damme was trained in, and then for DTV fans, that was Olivier Gruner's uh, style of fighting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then you have one of the uh, one of my favorite ones here is the fighter from Brazil, um, and you know as I mentioned before, Brazil kind of it, they're known for their Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, incorporating the Japanese jiu-jitsu into a more um, effective defense, uh, street fighting or, or combat-based system. 
uh, or in modern terms at least. But then you have also the, from the Afro-Indigenous perspective is Capoeira. Um, for, uh, for action movie fans, you might've seen Capoeira first blow up in, in prominence uh, in the film Only the Strong, starring Marta Cascos, right, where it's, you know, it's, its signature is that it's uh, based on a dance, really, it's a dancing flowing movement. Um, the story being that uh, back during the slavery era, um, the slaves were in, in, this, in the region, they would practice in the open uh, you know, because of course they couldn't defend themselves properly or they, they face punishment. So they hid their fighting style behind the dancing movements so that the, you know, the slave masters would, would think they're dancing, but they're actually practicing uh, combat techniques. So a lot of, you know, a lot of flowing, a lot of uh, kicks and spins, you know, it's very elaborate, it's, it's beautiful. It's also, you know, in the right, in the, in the right practitioner, it's very deadly. And this of course is, I want to just point out this, uh, the, uh, the actor uh, Latif Crowder, he's, he's, a, he's a long time, um, the, he, for for years he's been in action movies uh, as one of, one of the heavies, um, and he, he that's his one of his specialties is cop order, and you see it so beautifully done here in, in that is Undisputed Three. Yeah, I wanted to take a minute to. I'm glad you mentioned him because when you when you mentioned brought it up, I was going to say we're going to spend a minute here on Latif yeah. because he is one of the most impressive film fighters working in the world right now. Uh, people may have seen him. He played Eddie Gordo in the. A uh, fairly unremarkable but entertaining enough Tekken movie. Uh, most notably now, he is one of the primary stunt doubles for The Mandalorian. Uh, he is one of Pedro Pascal's primary doubles uh, on The Mandalorian for a lot of the, the fighting and action scenes. But Latif is... Latif is incredible. He uh, gets a decent starring role... Tying it back to Michael Jai White, he gets a decent starring role. He gets a decent starring role in Falcon Rising. He plays Michael Jai White's partner in that, basically. But, it, folks, if you see Latif Crowder's name on something and you're an action fan, you should put a pin in that and make sure to check it out because he is one of my favorite screen fighters. I think he's just absolutely incredible. Yeah, he's always a joy to watch. Uh, he's also he fought the uh, Tony Jaa one of his films as well. I know there's a big scene there. And also, funny enough, he was in a. You know, uh, if if you're a fight movie fan, you're you're probably a fighting game fan as well, video games. And so when Tekken Three came out, the character Eddie Gordo, you know, a lot of people said uh, when they saw Latif, they were like, "Oh, that guy should play Eddie Gordo." And of course, you know, he did that. In fact, in the uh, the film adaptation of uh, Tekken, which was not very good, although. Again, he does a great performance as Eddie Gordo, the Capoeira style. Tekken is funny because it's a movie that's got nothing about it comes together well, but like it, it's a movie that I kind of think fight film fans should still check out because it's like the idea of a a movie with Latif, Luke Goss, Gary Daniels, John Fu. Uh, CHT himself, Kerry Hiro, Hiroyuki Tagawa, like uh, it, it is a it is a movie that I think people still need to see, but it is nothing about it comes together very well, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't work, but I still think the the fight film talent in that movie is is unreal. Yeah, there's some heavy hitters there, and like I said, like it suffers I guess the same plague that happens to all video game adaptations that. No one really knows how to how to adapt a story of a game, and even here it's, it's almost kind of on a silver platter where it's a fighting tournament. That's the easiest thing to do. 
But, you know, I think probably the best case example is uh, Mortal Kombat in 95. But yeah, you know, again, it's just, uh, there's so much, there's so many ways it can, it can go wrong. And they did in this case. <laughs> Yeah, I would almost rather have just had a straight tournament fighting film with that cast. Take ev- Because you could see the movie sweating so hard to fit in the Tekken mythology and, and the stories that have been built up over these games. And one of the things that I think, you know, not to get too far off track, but listeners know that's what this podcast does. We go on tangents. One of the things that I think Mortal Kombat does so well is it just boils it down to its simplicity. It's a tournament movie. There's enough in there from the game for some fan service and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, Mortal Kombat's primary objective is to be a fight tournament, blood sport style movie. And I think that's why that works. You know, contrast that with, say, Street Fighter, which I love to death because I can't not love a movie that bananas, but it's a terrible adaptation of a video game. It's a terrible movie. You know, it, it, it doesn't do, it doesn't do what they should have done, which is again, just to do street fighter as a, a fighting movie, just do it as a tournament movie. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, all these games, all these games has a problem where the games themselves has this, because they've been on so long, they have this deep mythology in its course. So it's, very difficult to try to excise what works, what doesn't. So yeah, <laughs> but anyway, so let me go back to back to the film. Um, I'm just gonna go over a few of the uh, other styles. Um, of course, yeah, Boyka himself, uh, which uh, being Russian, uh, you know, as he says himself, he's more of a uh, all-rounded style, so nothing too specific in his case. Um, but there isn't also a there's a uh, Croatian fighter in the in the film, and uh, again, this goes back to my point about Undisputed Two. Where he seems to be fighting with like a, a kickboxing style, but um, it's not the same. You know, kickboxing, American kickboxing is not the same as Muay Thai. It's not the same as Croatian style. Um, and this this recalls the famous fighter uh, Mirko Krokop, as as famous as Homes, who was again one of the one of the greatest fighters of the modern era. Just absolutely brutal, brutal technique. Um, he was one of, one of the best ever. And so you see that in one of the fights here as well. Um, yeah, you remember when they tried to make Crow Cop into a, uh, a, a movie star, and it just didn't take. Oh off. no, I, I've never seen no. Yeah, they uh, they they made a movie. He was in a movie called Ultimate Force, uh, and they they tried to make him into a DTV star, and it just, you know, <laughs> one thing I'll say, uh, just another Adkins movie. One thing I will say is is. Uh, John Hyams was smart enough to know that Andre Arlovsky makes a great silent villain, uh, another yeah. great real life fighter. Uh, he makes a great silent villain, uh, but probably shouldn't be the lead of a movie. And I would say the same for Crow Cop. I mean, if you're a big, <laughs> if you're a big Crow Cop fan, check out it's ultimate force 2005, check out the movie, but it's not, it's not great. Um, but they did try, you know, again, because that was that was right when UFC was at its biggest and they wanted to turn all these UFC stars into film stars and, and stuff like that. When really the answer was they should have all just done what Boz Rutten did, which was create that incredible fight series because uh, you mentioned him and I thought of it. I don't know if you ever saw these, man, but he had this whole fight series that was just and it. It was one of the first big sort of viral hits on YouTube because he would post the clips on YouTube of how to like 
when you're in a bar fight. Uh, and he would always do with that great accent. He'd always be like, no, some guy comes to you. You don't do this and you don't do this. You just go, bah, and you kick him in the nuts. And then you go, bah, and you <laughs> smash him into the table. And then uh, it was great. And he went viral because of it. And so I think a lot of these guys, they should have kind of gone that route instead of trying. So uh, Bashrutin is kind of special in that he has that charisma, that X factor. Even going so far as he became friends with Kevin James, you know, King of Queens actor. And he's, he has a pretty successful career as a, a comedic actor. He was even in uh, his film, uh, uh, Here Comes a Boom, you know, he has a, he has a great comedic timing to him, as well as being, you know, one of the baddest men to ever have lived on the face of the earth, you know? <laughs> so he's, he's a very special superstar kind of case with, like, with him, where he has that ability to, you know, has a physicality and the, the toughness, the meanness, but also he's a, he's a, he's a He's a, cl- a class clown almost. It's great. Yeah, no, he he just has such a larger than life personality. I mean, he just you can't contain him yeah. in in anything. Uh, I I agree, and that that's what I will say. Uh, sort of is Crow Cop does not did not have that <laughs> charisma, and uh, and so unfortunately he did not become the big movie star uh, that people wanted him to be. Yeah. Okay, so I'll move on to um. So the, I guess we're gonna get to the uh, the two big co stars of this film. Um, you know, who also they're reflecting these, this both these fighting styles and this uh, conscious change of uh, of perception. Uh, the first is uh, I'll do with the the ally first. Uh, you see the the fighter known as Turbo. Uh, he's an American boxer who's in uh, he's been in prison for a long time, and he's transported to this uh, to the prison to do the tournament. So yeah, and this character Turbo played by uh, Mikhail Jenkins, and uh, I gotta say, you know, he's definitely one of if. Atkins was kind of a breakout star in two. I would say he is definitely one of, if not the breakout stars in uh, Industry Three, uh, because his uh, his larger than life presence works so well and contrasts so well with uh, Boyka's, you know, taciturn, stoic uh, disposition. You know, again, similar to back in the first movie where you know have the uh, you have the brash Chambers versus the reserved Monroe, and it works so beautifully in this case too. Russia, hey Russia. You talk too fucking much. <laughs> like their their interplay is just so great, and I love. Uh, I don't want to jump ahead of what you might say, but I love to the idea that it's Turbo's. You know, because Boyk is more or less unabashedly a villain into, and in this one, it's it really is Turbo that sort of awakens in Boyka this desire this need to be a hero you know Boyka is not a hero until he meets Turbo and it's only really through his interactions with Turbo that Boyka decides that there is that maybe his life is over because all he can be is the most complete fighter in the world but that Turbo has something outside he's got children he's got a life and I I think that is for such a direct to video you know a direct to video action movie that is such a wonderful character beat and character arc that is one of the things that I think sets this above so many of its contemporaries. Yeah, they spend a good amount of time in the film um, becoming friends, or at least there's a focus on their relationship as it grows. Uh, you know, that's part one of my favorite parts. That's when they um, after a brief fight together in the uh, labor camp as it were they're both locked up in solitary confinement and you know it's a pretty long stretch of the, uh, like a few minutes long where they're kind of side by side in cells and they're kind of well at least turbo is kind of going crazy and so they kind of talk each other to, to each other 
well, he's talking and Wicked's saying, shut the fuck up. <laughs> but you kind of, you start to get into their interior lives, their, their mindsets, and, you know, and, and, you know, Turbo starts to kind of lose it a little bit. You see contrasted with uh, Haboka, you know, you can only imagine how many times he's been locked up in solitary confinement. So he, he knows how to go into himself and how to, you know, stay calm. And it's a very interesting, and you, and you kind of see, it's almost as if Turbo was not so much talking shit, but crying out for help a little bit. And then, uh, so after that that sequence, they kind of come back, and that's, again, that's when the uh, the relationship grows grows more. It's a very fascinating thing. Well, and it's it's really funny that you mentioned that he's he's kind of calling out for help uh, because one of the other scenes that I love is when Boyka helps Turbo escape, and, and you know, and you again, you get the payoff because Turbo doesn't want to escape because he's there's no nobility in that and stuff like that, and he's like, "Why are you doing this?" And Boyka's just like. Stop asking so many fucking questions, you know, and but it's interesting. And again, I actually am just having this sort of thought right now. I'm I'm making this up as I go along because you saying that Turbo is crying out for help. But I think that's one of the things that's resonated with me for this movie so much is, look, we're big action fans and I don't want to get too far off into the weeds on this. But one of the problems with a lot of action movies is obviously they engage in quite a bit of toxic masculinity and so much of this movie is kind of anti-toxic masculinity it is about these two very macho masculine dudes learning to rely on one another and help one another and sort of encourage and support one another to be the best people they can be and again that shit is not that that's a depth that you don't see in a lot of DTV action movies uh, by by any means, which is, again, one of the reasons that I have argued that Undisputed Three is one of the all time greats. It is up there with Bloodsport and Enter the Dragon as far as action movies go. It's an all time great movie because there is so much shit going on in this movie that I don't even know maybe the filmmakers intended. Uh, I don't know that they necessarily intended it to be there, but it is fucking there. You watch the movie and it's there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, this, there's shades of a, maybe a little bit of a Apollo Creed and Rocky having their relationship grow, you know, then with but kind of it's very contained in this film, but it's there, you know, it's, a, it's an actual, it's a kinship, maybe not friendship, but, you know, it's a recognition of two kindred souls, you know, crossing paths. That's very beautiful. Um, so, what uh, I also wanted to get in, you mentioned how deep the film goes, maybe without even realizing it, is that, so I mentioned the fighting styles. And so, at first, when you see Turbo, when you see him fight, it does appear that he has a, a pure boxing stance, boxing style, you know, very, very extremely fast counters and, and hooks and jabs. You know, it's very, very tight boxing. But then, in one of his main fights, something very special happens that um, he's kind of taken back a little bit. He's on the ropes. And he changes his, his stance, and he's, he's fighting the, uh, the the Croatian fighter. He changes stance and begins to counter the boxer. So what I want to talk about here is this kind of kind of kind of in depth. So I'm pretty sure that the stance, the fighting form he takes up, is what's known as the 52 blocks. So this is a <laughs> you talk about the martial arts uh, uh, in in world history and uh, the mystique of martial arts. So. It's just kind of been hard, difficult to research, but from what I can tell, the 52 blocks is a fighting style that was born, born out of American prison systems, prison fighting, where people had to you know fight for their lives, literally. And 
from what I can tell, this specific style, 52 blocks, is more or less a counter boxing style where it's uh, using uh, defensive and offensive movements are one and the same. Whereas in that instance that a, a block becomes an offensive strike. So you, in the film, you see him fighting uh, when the once he changes that stance, when the other Croatian fighter comes in to throw a punch, he uses his elbow strike to hit the guy's arm, his inner arm, to shock, to shock his arm, to damage him. And then he uses a series of flowing blocks over his head and using his arms that are both blocks, but also strikes at the same time. And, uh, and, and yeah, like I said, this, this is a very fascinating fighting style. And it's also a very mystique around it too, because it's not, it's not really a uh, formal school or class or even history about it. It's all kind of conjectural in some cases. Uh, that said, there, there's a, a few guys on, uh, on YouTube, uh, a few uh, practitioners um, here, in, here in New York, actually, a few uh, fighters here in the city who uh, who talk about this art and who practice it. Um, I guess we'll put the links in later on uh, in, the, in the comments or descriptions. I mean, but one example you might want to look up uh, Light Burley, L Y T E Burley, on YouTube. He's a practitioner, a teacher of this art. And uh, like I said, it's it's this also ties into in a more historical context. Back in the seventies, you know, during there, there's a well documented link between Eastern martial arts, its, its prominence in America during the 70s and the black power movement uh, during the 60s and 70s. Yeah, this is reflected in, you know, when Bruce Lee came to fame and both how in real life he was, uh, he was actively embracing American and Western uh, and specifically African-American students to his, to, into his, uh, his dojo, into his fighting style, but also in his films, like for the main example is Jim Kelly into the dragon, you know, a quarry, a quarry practitioner and how, uh, that that melding of cultures was a big deal during that era of black power and it's and that same there's a kind of a hidden history that i can't really get into here uh, probably because i'm not too familiar with it but also because it's, it's still like i said it's a very um there's a lot of uh, conjecture and uncertainty about the history of it all but there again you see that that same lineage of this combat art uh but with, with a real method methodology behind it in 52 blocks and so it's a, it's a very fascinating thing. Like, and again, when I first saw this at, at the time and uh, when this movie came out, I had no idea about it. I, I, it didn't really occur to me. You, you see Tribble kind of, you know, you take that stance and kind of go into like a higher zone. But yeah, it's this film, is, as a, just as a purely martial arts film, has so much deeper connotations to it. It's a very fascinating thing to see. Well, and it's in two things I kind of want to say on that one, two, it's also so cinematic, you know, the scene where, like you said, turbos on the ropes and he brings his fists together in front of his face and then waves the guy on is so cinematic. And in such a, a, a brief moment we establish because when we first meet turbo, it's almost like, Oh, he's just the pompous full of shit windbag. Right. And in that, scene you immediately establish no this guy's a legitimate threat and he's actually a legitimate fighter and that could be a problem for boyka and so then i love the way the story works it out that we still get boyka having to take on uh dolar but turbo gets his own arc he's not shortchanged he doesn't get killed by dolar like you'd expect in maybe like a lesser movie where the, you know, the best friend or the, the fellow fighter who's good usually ends up getting killed to motivate the hero. 
Uh, instead, Turbo gets a whole different story that goes in a completely different direction, right? And so he doesn't get shortchanged, and he has that really terrific fighting style. The other thing I want to say is I think a lot of that, and, and we're going to come back and talk about him because I know you want to talk about Marco, uh, and we have to talk about Marco, but I also think a lot of that is just because of Larnell Stovall. You know, again, these movies wearing so much of their their blackness on their sleeve. We've got a black fight coordinator who is one of the most amazing, creative, inventive fight coordinators working in movies. And I think so much of that, and he's so, Larnell is so smart. If you watch any of his movies, he's so smart about his fights. So there's no question that that, that stuff was intentional on his part, I think. I mean, that's yeah. conjecture, but I, I feel comfortable saying that. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's like a, it makes you kind of remember or recognize there's an entire, there's so much legacy and lineage in these films that isn't immediately apparent. But, you know, like, like uh, I think uh, um, Atkins himself might have mentioned that um, they wanted to base uh, three off, off of the uh, classic tournament films like, you know, Enter the Dragon, like I, like I mentioned. But so there's that legacy of that old school classic tournament but also, like I said, this real legacy of this real somewhat hidden martial art being expressed in this film. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, Larnell's my age, so there's no question that he would have grown up on those 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 fight films that you're talking about. The the Enter the Dragons and the, you know, and Jim Kelly his entire run and his entire career and just the that history, you know, he grew up in New Orleans. I mean, he he's he's not what we typically think of when we think of standard sort of fight coordinators. He's got a whole different experience he's bringing to it, and that shows in his movies. That shows in the movies that he does the choreography in. And uh, you know, again, I'll we'll talk more about him in a minute. But uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, folks. I apologize for at least me fanboying out a little bit about this movie, but there's no question this is this movie's the reason I'm doing this podcast. So um, it's going to be a little bit of a there's going to be a lot of fawning here from me. Yeah, and there's another thing I want to about the legacy of it all, the, the history of it all is that um, you know, th again, these are prison fighting films, and like I said, you know, you can't really separate blackness from prison films. And so I've also, there's also a legacy here of not just Bruce Lee, but also there's a, a pretty kind of famous uh, cult film series um, that you may be aware of called the Penitentiary Series, directed by the uh, famous uh, indie black director, uh, uh, Jamal Fanaka. And these movies uh, that took place, I think, in, in this early 80s, 70s and early, in early 80s. It's about a, 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 a boxer. Well, basically, it's, it's a prison boxing movie way back when. And he... Uh, and I was surprised to see, I, I saw Penitentiary 3 a few years ago. Um, of course, you know, after, well after Undisputed 3. But also, so this week, Penitentiary 3 came out in 1987. But I was surprised to see that uh, in this in this film in particular, the, 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 the main hero, he ends up uh, in the end of that film having a, uh, I guess they call it a free form fight with a uh, grappler. It, it's, it's an MMA movie. It's a full mixed martial arts movie before we knew, before we knew what to call it. You know, it's, it's, it's a very... I was so taken aback when I saw it that to see that even though, like I said, this film Undisputed 3 is representing and showcasing this newer consciousness of our uh, saying of fighting, 
and yet that's it's always been with us. It's this kind of mixed fighting forms has been with, with us both in the history of martial arts and the history of film. So to see that kind of reverberate the history of these mixed martial arts prison brawl tournament things is so fascinating to see. You know, kind of history repeating, or not just repeating, but um, revolution, revolutions of how it amplifies. It's a very fascinating thing. Agreed, and I'm so glad you brought up the penitentiary series and just Jama Fanaka on the whole because I, I, I'm never gonna really probably get a chance to talk about him on this show. So I'm gonna take a minute to tell people listening, you gotta check out the penitentiary series. It's it's fantastic, especially I really think the first one is just terrific. And then also his movie, Welcome Home, Brother Charles, which is, I am not going to say anything about that movie other than it is one of the most powerful but bonkers movies you will ever see in your life. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's crazy shit, but it's like, it's, like, it's, it's crazy as it's powerful. Like all this stuff is great. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a unique just a unique voice in film. Uh, and, and I mean that in, with the highest possible compliments. So check out Gemma Fanaka movies, check out the penitentiary series. Uh, you guys will not be disappointed if you haven't seen them. Yeah. And so uh, now I guess uh, we'll into the other big star of the film. Um, but I think you probably have a better background than I do, but of course we're talking about the main villain, uh, Marco Zoror, the great uh, Chilean actor who plays uh, Dolor. Uh, the pain as the main uh, the main uh, combatant of M fifty three. Now, just say quickly that um, in, in the same theme of having the celebration of baseball sports dominance in the early two thousands, um, he also represents that, represents that international captivation as well. Uh, even though he's Colombian, I, I felt that his kind of characterization was most similar to the uh, famous fighter Anderson Silva, the spider. Um, so if you guys don't know about him, Anderson Silva, you know, considered one of the, the one of the best uh, UC, best martial artists ever live, ever, ever get to the octagon. So yeah, he was a the he was a middleweight champion for several years, and he was uh, undefeated for a long time. And what was so what was so phenomenal about him is that he was you know he was indeed a phenom in the true sense of the word. He had a it was almost it's hard to describe his fighting style without you know seeing seeing it. So I recommend definitely going to YouTube and seeing clips of Anderson Silva fight. But essentially, it was as if he, he could, it was like his opponents were fighting in slow motion. And he was just, he was always two, three steps ahead of the movements. He would slip punches and dodge strikes like, like, a, like supernaturally. It was uncanny how well he did it. But then from those dodges and slips and, and evasions, he would just take, it would, all it would take is one strike, one flying kick or one, one, one jab, one straight punch, and he, he got to be out cold. Like the, the surgical precision of his striking was incredible. But it wasn't just the athletic ability. It was he had a very powerful cerebral game. He would uh, often he would kind of psych his, psych his opponents out. He would. It's almost like he would be playing with them like a like a a cat playing with a mouse or something like that. He would. Um, but he would be almost like a, a joker. He would kind of joke and 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 joke and joke about kind of to psych his opponents out, and they would think that he's playing around, and they would it would throw them off of their game his almost, you could say, his silly attitude. But of course, the moment that they dropped their guard and kind of got frustrated or went in for their kill, he was, again, he was already steps ahead of them, waiting for that opening, and he would take it, and, went, and they were out like a light. It was such a, such that, that cerebral, that cerebral attack was so phenomenal, you know, he really brought that to the table for all fighters to take, uh, 
for years to come. That it wasn't just it wasn't just about your pure physical gifts or ability, but you had to really get to the mind of your opponent to truly beat them. And he was one of the best ever at that. And you, you see that kind of here with Delore. He's you know this dangerous uh, kind of I, I, I presume he's a dangerous uh, enforcer in his former life or whatever. But along with his amazing fighting skills, he would constantly taunt or, or go uh, Boyka and Turbo and the other opponents just to psych them out and then go for the kill. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's he's such a terrific villain in this. I, I love the, one of the things I've mentioned before uh, is just how quirky of a director Isaac Florentine is. I didn't really realize that until I started doing this show because he gives Dolor so many quirky traits, right? Like the, he gets the great lines of like, uh, as long as I've got my chocolate and, and, but they just, the way he's sitting under the umbrella reading while they're all doing hard labor and, and the way he keeps calling Boyka the Prince of toilets, you know? And it's just so, and he doesn't ever raise his voice or anything. He's just so, uh, intimidating in, in trying to get into their, their mindset. You know, one of my favorite absolute scenes in the movie and one of my favorite line deliveries is when Boyka gets back in the ring with the mop tied around his knee and just the way uh, Marco looks at him and looks up and then just goes, bravo. You know, like it's just, he, he delivers that line with such relish. There's just such uh, uh he puts so much spin on that line and, and I love him as a villain in this. He's so great. And it's also helped, you know, by the fact that again, I've said this about Michael J. White. Marco's also an actual human giant who has no business moving the way he moves. Like somebody that big should not be able to move with that much grace, uh, <laughs> but he does. And it makes, it makes him a, a terrifying villain. Uh, and I love that when his leg gets broken at the end, you know, Isaac's smart enough to give him this, uh, he just crumbles, right? He crumbles and he starts crying and everything. And it's, it's so cathartic because Boyk has really outthought, outsmarted and, and outfought this very cerebral terrifying villain uh and and reduced him to nothing it's such a cathartic end to the movie yeah it's uh it's, it's kind of funny um it's kind of funny you know i made that i made the comparison to him in, as, as silva and it's also funny to see in, in real life uh i guess you could say in silva's end uh was when he fought uh, uh weidman at the uh, ufc 68 and kind of a smoking thing happened where uh he's trying to pick him up but then oh well oh well, actually it's there was two matches uh the first match, he kind of, uh, Weidman kind of out, got past the, the outsporting thing and the surprise knockout. But then in the rematch, um, later on, uh, Weidman checks Silva's kick and also breaks his shin. And that pretty much ended his career for, for good. I did not know that. That is, uh, I, that, the, the, the parallels there are, you know, and I know Weidman became kind of a very big, UFC deal after that. I know I know those two fights are, are you know, sort of legendary UFC fights. I will yeah. say, unfortunately... Like I remember, you know, you see the, uh, how gruesome the injury is in the film, and then to see it happen years later in real life, like, oh my god, yeah, it is. it was that bad. It's horrific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, unfortunately, I will say, having just seen his most recent movie, uh, Anderson Silva 
trying to make the transition. I hope I hope he gets better, but thus far his uh attempts to break into movies have have not been that great unfortunately. Um yeah. it just it is you know being able to and and this is one of the things that I have always said film fighting and real fighting are not the same thing and being able to do one does not mean you can do the other. You know, I I remember it's apocryphal but there's a a great story out there about Jackie Chan getting this would have been in the mid eighties around wheels on meals era, getting a little cocky and, and basically saying that he thinks he could actually take on Benny the jet and Benny essentially saying anytime, any place and Jackie (laughs) more or less backing down from that. Because again, Jackie, terrific film fighter, Benny, the jet or Kitas was both but he was a real fighter first and foremost. And so I would never, as an actor, would never consider stepping into the ring with him. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. So, well, I talk about Monk a little more. Just, um, again, like you mentioned, it's like he moves, like it's, he's a panther. He's this kind of huge, imposing presence, but he moves, I and mean, both of them move with the speed of men half their size, him and Ikens as well. It's such a, such a beautiful thing to see in, Really, I don't think in a, in many ways we haven't really seen fighting like that since, honestly. The way that these guys, you know, these two guys, three guys, you know, um, Mikhail as well, in their prime, going at full tilt, and, but being graceful about it. You know, that's why, you know, just overall, I really think Undisputed 3, one of the best martial arts films of so far this century, because you see these these three game players, uh, plus the supporting cast at their prime going all out it's you know you, you really see anything like that no and, and you don't see a lot of people up and coming either that i think you, you know there is definitely in the indie scene you got your guys like eric jacobus and the stunt people or brian sloyer those guys are all doing this type of stuff but they're doing it for 50 bucks. They're not getting, you know, even Undisputed 3 didn't have a huge budget, but it's got a bigger budget than a lot of direct-to-video action movies. And so to have the time, you know, they they spent a full three days shooting that fight between Scott and Marco. And now on most movies, you would get a day. You know, most DTV action movies, you'd get a day to shoot a fight like that. And you just you need that time to make sure that everybody's at the top of their game. And you're right. I agree with you completely. This is uh, the type of movie that we don't see very much anymore. And we didn't honestly see that much before it. I mean, this is why I say it's an all timer. It's an absolute all time classic of the genre. Yeah. And uh, I'll go back a bit to what we mentioned about the, the the character depth, the, uh, the depth of character that kind of cements not that cements the uh, flashy action, makes it a truly great film. Um, so back to a bit to uh, Turbo's character is when you later find out that he's also um, he has some military background as well. You know, you hear him say during some of their uh, travails that he says uh, he has a mantra: improvise, adapt, overcome, which is in fact one of the Marine Corps mantras they always in their training and in, in their way of life. And so they don't. I don't think they say exactly which uh, service or branch he was, but it's clear that he has that military background which is why he's so lethal, not just in the ring, but also, you know, as we will see at the end of the movie, lethal um, in other ways too. And um, 
it's again having the 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 thought to have all this all this lived in experience as a character and then apply that to this tournament fighting film is what elevates it to above most films in general at least of this ilk but uh just of action films in general to have that presence of mind to make all these things come together and uh you know again like uh, uh it, it's well you know the name of the movie the movie is a uh, on the three redemption, and you know, it's not just you know the main character is having that redemption as well, but it's also you, know, you see it a little bit in Turbo that um that you can there's more to it there's more to what we've done there's more to what we've more to what we've uh, accomplished or also more to what we, we've been guilty of and again same thing it didn't occur to me at the time watching this but now after this so many years. Um, kind of that makes the movie resonate that much more to see that, as you mentioned before, Atkins not necessarily um, wanting to be a hero, but understanding that kind of a, maybe a, a higher cause or a better calling. And then you see with Turbo, him becoming friends with him uh, or, you know, kindred spirits trying to move on from what they've done and to be better people. You know, this is, you know, like I said before about the other movies, you you let people laugh at these cheap DTV movies, but there's so much soul in these things that is taken for granted. But it's so important to not just film, well, to both film and honestly, the 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 world or essence of martial arts is that that soul of martial arts is very much present in this film. The this quest, the journey to become a better person, um, you know, th through both your body and your mind, and also your actions, how you how you interact with other people in this world. It's very heavy stuff going on here for this simple, you know, beat em up film, you know? Well, and, and it's so, you know, one of my favorite lines, I mean, there's a reason it's my opening line in the series is because I feel like it's such a profound character moment because in Undisputed 2, when Boyka says, I'm the most complete fighter in the world, it's a brag. You know, it's a... It's a, it's a threat. It's a taunt. And then when, you know, he says it to Turbo and he's just, you know, it, it, it's the adding the, the, the front, the preface that God has given me one gift, only one. I am the most complete fighter in the world. It, it's like, literally it is, this is what Boyka's path has to be. He, he's, he's devoutly religious and he truly believes that the only thing he can bring to the world is that he is the most complete fighter in the world. And that's, man, that's, again, I know people, there's going to be people listening that are watching this going, come on, you guys are reading too much into a, a, a direct-to-video fight film. But it's like, every time I watch this movie, it's so rich and I pull so much more out of it that that, that line has become one of my favorite lines in all of cinema now, because I just think it says, it says so much about who Boyka is. It says so much about the relationships in these movies. And it, it really does make this movie so much deeper than I think people give it credit for. Yeah, absolutely. Just, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> I feel kind of fully getting emotional about it now because, you know, I haven't really, I haven't really had a chance to talk about this too deeply with anybody. Um, so I'm kind of glad we're doing it now on, on the podcast, at least. It's uh, you know all this, this uh, 
I, I kind of have a, a recent, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say health scare, but, you know, um, I've had some uh, degrading health uh, over, over time. Just because, you know, the 12 years in the Army was, it, it does a number on you, to say the least. Um, and so it, and part of why I think about the, these actors being in their prime is because I remember, you know, it was around this time when the movie came out where I was also at my prime, you know, at, at my peak physicality. And what you know, and then, um, but I was, you could argue, I was using it for maybe not the best purposes. Um, but no, and then to see that now, coming back from that, being away from it now, being at home, and um, I have to learn or relearn a new way to apply myself that doesn't necessarily involve my physical strengths, but also my mind and uh, my spirit, if you want to call it that. And yeah, I think that this movie, the, the kind of the overarching theme about it is that, you know, when he's, like, as you mentioned, the most complete fighter isn't just being complete in your body, but it's that completeness of spirit of that, uh, of that understanding of others around you. Um, you know, the, the, real, the real essence of the martial arts. It's a very important thing that I think that a lot of films or at least a lot of action films are very much missing. And to be fair, they don't have to have it. You know, it's you're, you're there just to see the, the flashiness of the action. It's, that's what it's for. But I think when you put that in there, that's what elevates. Uh, that's what makes them the timeless, timeless uh, films, is having the wherewithal to do that. Well, and I think that's one of the things that holds true for the entire Undisputed series, right? Is I don't want to necessarily say religious, and I am not a religious man, but there is a deep spiritual for lack of a better term spirituality in these movies uh that that runs through and i i don't know if that's just a a combination of of all the stuff because you know monroe in the first one is a deeply spiritual character you know he's always building his little uh toothpick houses to keep him in that zen calm state Chambers sort of has to learn a, a spirituality and humility in the second one before he can become his true potential, the 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 ice man that he was supposed to be. And and you know, and obviously Boyka has a, a profoundly deep spirituality. Uh and that again is something that I don't and I don't know if that's Isaac or again, some of this stuff you wonder if if even the filmmakers realized that this was what was going on here or if they were just making trying to make the best you know kicky head movie they could <laughs> um but i think there is a, such a theme that goes through all of these uh, as far as you know i told scott i think giving this the subtitle redemption was it was a brilliant move because that, that's that's a title that could easily be used you could add that to almost any direct-to-video action movie right but it really does tell you what this movie's about. This movie is about redemption and that we are not the we are not the products of our past, that we can be different. We can be even Gaga, who we gotta talk about because Mark Evenier is Gaga is one of my favorite movie characters of all time. I fucking love him. Uh but even he has an arc in this movie, you know, that, that isn't necessarily there in the second one. And, and, and I think that is, it, it reminds me a lot. I've actually, I, I thought of it just because I'm on IMDb and it popped up, but, um, 
and it's not related to Undisputed 3 in the slightest, but the Gavin O'Connor movie Warrior. Very similar movie to me in the regards of I think it is so much smarter, so much deeper, so much better than it gets credit for as just a tournament fight film. Yeah. And I, I want to kind of just point out that, you know, I think uh, the running thesis of this podcast is how we, how we talk about how, as you say, all action in the modern era goes through Atkins, so to speak. And I think that um, you can also uh, point out that what he's brought here on that essence of uh, spirituality, as you, as you call it, is also what I think um, other films are missing, and what he was, what he helped kept alive in his films, that I think that other films would do well to re- revisit or reinvestigate or kind of re- put back in. Because even you know, even uh, I don't know, you'll probably talk about this in a later date. Uh, the ninja films, you know, again, Ninjitsu uh, uh, itself is, you know, classically, uh, it's a lot of spirituality based in the fighting form or in the art and you know, the history of it all. And I think that uh, that's one of the things that maybe is a corollary to your thesis that how we we do we need that essence of spirituality uh, in this action to help make them worthwhile or at least make or to really speak them better than the, the average head kicky movie. Yeah, I mean that goes that goes back to sort of the Hong Kong stuff, right? You know, even even Enter the Dragon. Uh, you have offended me and you have offended the Shaolin temple, you know, just the, the idea of, um, that martial arts isn't just a vehicle for killing people. It is a way of life. It is a, uh, a way of being, uh, one of the things, actually one of the modern things that I think really hits on that. Well, is frankly friggin' Cobra Kai, Cobra I was, Kai. dude. I was just, I was just gonna say that. Oh my god! Wow. <laughs> like Cobra Kai, we just binged that uh, a little while ago, and I was utterly blown away by how smart and how deep, and and, and from an action standpoint, also how great the fighting in that series is, but also <laughs> just how smart and how deep that series is when it comes to what is martial arts? What does it mean? You know, is it? it's just folks, if you're listening and you haven't watched Cobra Kai, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I was going to say like, that's one of the uh, prime examples I think of in the most recent, recent era of action uh, cinema slash media of using that, that core tenet of spirituality um, to its fullest in modern context. You know, and it, it's, it's kind of funny because it feels like a, uh, a 90s, like a teen drama show, like a CW show. And it kind of is, you know, the actors, they, they, they're kind of made to look that way. But it's deeply, heavily about, you know, the the conflict of between peace and violence and how do you apply violence and, uh, you know, and, again, redemption, you know, in the case, you know, now the, the bad guy from the movies is now the nominal protagonist of the series. Um, and even even in some cases, the hero, you know, Ralph Macchio, it, it, how he is, has great areas too. And that, you know, that's a great example of this uh, ongoing uh, journey of, Finding that that spiritual balance uh, within the realm of the physicality of martial arts, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's absolutely well. And again, you know, I mentioned it earlier. Also, it's pretty much anti toxic masculinity. The show, you know, because every bad decision, every bad thing that happens in that show is primarily because of 
people acting toxic and not being able to let go of the past and not being able to embrace that redemption that we hope that we're all entitled to. Um, or not entitled to, but that we hope that we can all earn at some point. Uh, this now a Karate Kid podcast? We can do that too if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll do a bonus episode on Cobra Kai when the new season comes out because there's, Jesus, there's a lot to talk about with that show. <laughs> Um, all right, man, we've been going on for almost an hour and a half, so I'm going to start winding this down here a little bit. But before I do, is there anything else that you want to add uh, about Undisputed 3? Uh, no, just like I said, I, I truly believe it's one of the uh, best martial arts films of the current 21st century. I highly recommend it, you know, not just for Atkins fans like us, but, you know, for anybody. It's, you know, if, if you like film, if, as you say you do, you need to, you know, be invested in the journey of Undisputed and specifically Undisputed 3. Um, and so, yeah, so uh, apart from that, uh, like I said, I think we last time we did some recommendations. Um, so I would say, uh, like I mentioned before, you definitely want to check out the, the Penitentiary series uh, directed by Jana, uh, of Jamal Fanaka. That's definitely, you know, again, like uh, that Black Power movement uh, feeling. Um, and plus also just a, the down and dirty prison fighting genre. It's all about that. So you definitely want to uh, catch those. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I'm going to recommend those. I'm going to recommend, obviously, the first Undisputed as well. Um, I'm going to throw out, and I will do this. Folks listening will have heard some of this in my intro. But again, I'm just going to drive home that Marco Zoror's movies are also worth checking out. I particularly like Redeemer. Uh, because it's got one of my favorite actors, uh, Kid Blue himself, Noah Sagan, doing a thing. Like, Noah is going, he's going big in that movie, and I always enjoy Noah going big. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend that. Um, since we talked about him to start, uh, Vice, go ahead and throw out your three favorite Walter Hill movies so that people can check those out, too. Hmm. All right, well... You know, it's kind of funny. Well, I guess the, the question maybe my, my favorite is the, the Warriors. Warriors, um, so, uh, seventy-eight. You know, it's a classic, a classic, uh, a classic New York City film. You know, classic, you know, gangland roller film. You know, iconic. So definitely do that one. Um, you know, I would say I'm actually a big fan of a. Uh, it was kind of a weird one. I didn't get a lot of didn't get a lot of play uh, from the nineties. Uh, Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. It's kind of a. Um, it's kind of a Western, but set in the 20s or like the kind of gangland era or a mob roaring 20s era. So it's kind of a mix of two kind of genres put in one. Um, yeah, I think it didn't really, I don't know if it did well or not, but uh, you don't really people talk about that. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a fascinating film. You know, you, again, you see, uh, you know, back when Bruce Willis was, you know, uh, awake. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, I think it's a fascinating film. And, uh, yeah, you know, just, just the easy one. Of course, everybody should see 48 Hours with Eddie Murphy and complete. I guess it's like a, uh, mandatory watching that one. <laughs> yeah, forty eight hours is. I mean, I just you if you haven't seen forty eight hours, reevaluate your life. Like that <laughs> is, if you want to watch the birth of a movie star, watch Eddie Murphy in forty eight hours. Um, I'm gonna also recommend uh, three different ones. Uh, I will just say, Last Man Standing is based on uh, Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest, which was also the same inspiration for uh, Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo and Sergio Leone's Fistful of Dollars. It's a really 
nasty and i mean that in a good way nasty little bit of work i think it's a it's a solid solid movie mm-hmm. i'm also going to recommend um one that i think is uh vastly underappreciated and it's my favorite walter hill movie which is uh streets of fire i think that is just such a weird blank check movie that he made after 48 hours and i love it to death uh i'm also a big fan of his western the long riders uh, have you seen the long riders? No, I haven't. No, that one's, that one's good. If you like Westerns, that's a, that's a good one. It's, uh, it's based on the James Younger gang and it's very Walter Hill. It's what he made right after the warriors. And then another one that I have a soft spot for that I will admit I haven't seen in quite a while is the reservists in the Bayou goes to hell movie, Southern comfort which is also a nasty little piece of, of work. Uh, Walter Hill could really make some nasty movies when he wanted to. Yeah. Well, I will say, I want to say the one you should not see. There, he did it in a 2010 with us. What's his loan? Bullet to the head. Africa hate that movie. That was, that was the worst movie I've seen that year. I don't know. Like, the thing with Walter Hill is that um, he has maybe as many hits as misses, I think, I feel like. And, you know, he's, he's done some stickers too in his time. And I don't know, maybe I caught it on the wrong time or on the wrong day, or I wasn't feeling it, but yeah, Bullet to the Head with uh, Stars with Stallone as like a, uh, a gangland enforcer. That shit was trash, man. No, don't watch that shit. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to agree with you. Uh, I think Stallone has a semi-decent fight with Jason Momoa at the end of it, but that, other than that, there's nothing to recommend it. I am also going to strongly encourage people to avoid 2016's The Assignment. It is a movie that is offensive on so many levels uh it's got a great michelle rodriguez performance but it is just it is nasty in all the bad ways uh (laughs) and uh it is and it it frankly fails as even an entertaining action movie there's just that one is also i try not to get negative but that movie's utter trash i think (laughs) um all right uh vice uh I think we have we have talked about this enough. We've made some good recommendations, so I'm just gonna say plug some shit. Where can people find you, man? Yeah, like I said, um, well, you mentioned before. I should, I should, uh, hopefully, by the time this comes out, I will have made my uh, annual Veterans Day War Film retrospective, where I talk about the war films that have come out this year. And I mean, of course, because this has been a turbulent year to say the least, for any number of reasons. Um, so usually I have one by Veterans Day. Of course, it's passed. But I hope to have it out by Thanksgiving. So hopefully by the time you're hearing this, it'll be already be out. Um, and that'll be on my website I write for newtonbus.net um, with my friends there. So I'll hopefully you'll see that soon. And otherwise, you can catch me on Twitter at, at VicePictus, where I talk shit all the time and have some occasional good recommendations. <laughs> and I again, I know I recommended this in Special Forces. I cannot recommend following you enough. You are a constant source of joy uh, on my Twitter feed. I I love following you. I love that we have gotten to know each other because of this podcast. Uh, because you have you have for years been a writer uh, and a Twitter follow that I have looked up to, and so I getting to actually talk to you about these movies has been uh, just an utter delight for me. I'm also gonna really strongly encourage people to follow or to make sure to read uh Luton bus on the regular. That is a, a rock solid, sharp film site, uh, especially the editorials and, and the sort of opinion pieces that are done. It's, 
it's just it's high level film writing at its best. Uh, so please, please, please make sure that you're following Vice, you're checking out Luton Bus, and when that overview of of military movies for the year hits, please read it and make sure to go back and read the old ones. Because how many years now have you been doing that? That bit? Um, well, I first started doing it for Birth Movies Death, and I think it was 2016 because that was the year I got out of the army. So it's been well, yeah, about four years now. It will have been the fourth iteration this year. And and so go make sure to go back and read the old ones. I think you can probably. I mean, may it rest in peace. Birth movies, death is still up, so you can still find them in the archives there. And, uh, and by the way, also, uh, I, if it's still up, uh, I actually wrote about these, the first three undisputed films uh, in a long form essay there, so you can uh, see some of the points I made there as well. If you search for the undisputed, hopefully it's still there. You can find that. And I will make sure to try and find them and link them in the show notes so that people can. Uh, can can check them out easily from the show notes. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of show, uh, your notes, uh, just another PS. Uh, so I mentioned, you know, in this conversation, talking about the uh, the martial arts form, the fifty two blocks. So I'll be sure to um, have some links for you there, so you can kind of uh, research and investigate for yourself that that this modern art form. Because again, I think it's a, it's a very fascinating thing that I think a lot of people, even you know, people well informed martial arts, don't know about. So definitely want to uh, you know have some links to that, and so you can start searching that for yourself. And I will make sure to include those. So we will be good to go. All right, man, thank you so much. This was great. This was exactly what I figured talking about this movie would be. I loved it. Uh, I think people are really going to dig this podcast. So thank you for joining me, man. All right, thank you. Take care. And that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you to Vice for joining me, and thank you as always to Scott Adkins for helping me out. You can find me at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and Letterboxd. You can find the Adkins Podcast on Twitter at Adkins Podcast or Adkins Undisputed on Instagram. You can find the show anywhere you can find podcasts. You can hear me on the Dana Buckler Show at Linktree slash Dana Buckler, where we talk about all sorts of movies, almost none of them Scott Adkins related. And next week is another biggie, so we've got the man, the myth, the legend, RTG, Real Todd Gaines coming to talk ninja, so make sure to bring your ears, your podcast app of choice, and your fucking champion to Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world.